Well, if the preaching falls flat today, we have the great truths that we've sung, and that is enough. We've sung some good gospel truths today. Before we get into Colossians, let's go to the Lord again in prayer and ask his blessing. Father, once again, we take advantage of the gift of coming into your presence and we ask again your blessing on your word this morning. This is what we most need, Lord. We need your instruction. We need our hearts directed towards you. We need our minds captivated by your truth. We need your spirit to work your word into our hearts and our lives. These are things we cannot accomplish. No matter how much we labor in speaking or labor in listening or labor in note taking, we need you to accomplish these things because they are divine works. They're supernatural works. Works that only you can accomplish. Oh, please let this time go far deeper than just our ears and our brains. Let them sink into the depths of our soul that we might be taken up with you, Jesus. For out of all that this life has and all that the world around us offers, what we really need is you. Out of all the things we might even learn and focus on this morning that are good things, what we need most is you. So in this time, would you be gracious to us and give us of yourself and compel us to give ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Well, I have been eager to be here this morning to come here into Colossians chapter 1. So if you will, take your Bibles, if you haven't already, open them to this small New Testament letter written to the Colossian believers some 2,000 years ago, around the year AD 60 to AD 64. Uh, if you are in Galatians or Ephesians or Philippians, you're right there. Keep going to your right. If you've stumbled into 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, 1 2 Thessalonians, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, or any of those, you've gone too far. Back up and go to your left. If you are in an Old Testament book, you're way off. Go to the table of contents and find your page number. And you will make it to Colossians. It's a small letter, four chapters. One author described it as a small letter with major content. And that is true. It is rich. It is loaded with glories of God. It majors specifically on Jesus. We'll talk about that in a moment. And as I've spent the last month or so studying this letter and preparing uh, for this time, I've become more and more and more excited. Before I get into it, however, let me tell you of a brief account of one of my favorite characters in church history. Some of you already know who I'm going to reference, Martin Luther. I like Martin Luther because he's not only one of the leaders of the Reformation, and not only does he re rediscover really and protect the gospel, but he's sarcastic, and he's brash, and he's blunt, during his life as a reformer, he suffered the threat of death and abuse constantly. 
Even his family was under the same threat. He eventually married. He eventually had six children, several of them adopted, and they too were under the threat, uh, threat of attack, abuse, and death. And that's the kind of life that Luther lived as he was fighting for uh, the gospel and the Protestant Reformation. In addition to those threats, though, there were often conspiracies that abounded about Martin Luther, rumors and falsehoods that swelled during his lifetime. And even today, they swirl and swell now uh, about who he really was and what he, he really sought out to accomplish and what he really said. Out of all the books and articles and things that I've read on Martin Luther, one in particular one rumor stuck out to me the most. It was a conspiracy in the last year of his life that he had died. Uh, it wasn't the only rumor that Martin Luther had died, but it was one that was uniquely detailed. Uh, for Martin Luther's enemies, there would have been no greater accomplishment than to tell of his demise in such a way that might squash his teaching in the Protestant movement. He was, after all, a hated figure uh, by many powerful people. And when conspiracies about his death came out, it wasn't easy for Martin Luther to refute them. He couldn't take a selfie, post it to Instagram, and tell everybody he's alive. When something was published back then, it was published in the newspaper or in pamphlets or books or articles, and it was taken as fact. And so his enemies would often publish these uh, rumors about his death in the hopes that people will believe it and come to think that there's no reason now to follow Martin Luther. Let's return back to our old beliefs and rites and rituals. This particular account of Luther's death went beyond just his demise, but went to a, an extreme to establish God's hatred of Martin Luther. It wrote that Luther had died, and the grave into which his body was placed was later found to be completely empty except for the stench of sulfur because God had taken him directly to hell. That was the account that they, Luther died. They buried him. They went back to make sure it was him. But he didn't have time to decay because God was so angry with him. He just sucked his body straight into hell. So the only smell there is burning sulfur. Martin Luther didn't respond to every account, but he did respond to this one. And he responded with humor and sarcasm. And he said, I felt quite tickled on my kneecap and under my left heel to learn of my death and how cordially the devil and his minions hate me. That was his way to refute this falsehood. So he published his own work saying it makes me laugh at the pains to which my enemies will go to try to squash what God is doing. That's essentially what he would end up writing. I say all of that to say this. There are times in life when we have to refute falsehood. Sometimes falsehood that's personal and about ourselves. We have to correct our reputation or we have to correct our character. Now bear in mind, not everything in life is worth the fight. But some things in life are worth the fight. They're worth taking the time and the effort to, to expose the truth. When it comes to biblical truth, it is always necessary to expose falsehood. It is always important to highlight the truth. Because falsehood, when it comes to 
God is nothing short than an undermining of the gospel. And an undermining of the gospel is nothing short than a fast track to hell. An undermining of the gospel is a robbing of our pleasure and our joy and our hope and our promise and our peace in God. An undermining of the gospel is a sabotage on our knowledge of God Himself. Thus, every time, every time, the Word of God or the Gospel of God is under attack from false teaching or false teachers, it must be refuted and corrected. And that is the whole point of the book of Colossians. Paul writes this short letter to refute false teaching, to correct falsehood, to clarify and expose the truth so that the Colossian believers might stay the course, rejoice in Christ, know their hope and, and pleasure in Jesus, and one day find themselves with Him in paradise. Now, we have to admit, we don't exactly know the false teaching that's plaguing the Colossian church. In fact, we don't know the extent that the false teaching plagues this church. Was it a teaching that had already infiltrated its way into the church and was leading some astray? Was it a, a false teaching that simply was just exposed to the church and threatened to invade the church in its life? It could even be a potential threat that's just circulating in the pagan culture of Colossae that Paul felt necessary to highlight so that the church wouldn't be taken captive. We simply don't know. And in fact, Paul is vague, and in my estimation, intentionally vague in dealing with this false teaching. Whatever it is, he doesn't give it a name. It's not expounded in other extra-biblical works. Whatever it may be, he felt it necessary to write to these believers and say, you need to be aware so that you can hold on to what is right, and in holding on to what is right, know God. And such is always the case with false teaching. We must refute it, expose it, run from it, avoid it, correct it, so that we might have God. That we might possess the truth of God. Most scholars, when they come to trying to understand the book of Colossians, they use this word that we don't often use in our English language. It's the word syncretic. It means to mix beliefs together. It's a conglomeration of different beliefs. And that's an apt word to use because that's apparently what's going on in this church the little Paul does have to say about the false teaching in the Colossian church comes from almost exclusively chapter 2. He uses some pagan terminology here. He uses some Jewish terminology here. And he even mingles the two at times. For instance, look in verse 8 of chapter 2. He simply calls it here in verse 8 a philosophy, an empty deceit. He calls it a, a teaching according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. That is almost patently pagan language. In fact, when he uses the word philosophy, we might, we might be inclined to think of Greek philosophers. Human tradition. Human tradition. 
elemental spirits. That's all uh, pagan language to describe the pagan culture of Colossae. But if you jump over now to verse 16, he uses distinctly Jewish language. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That is clearly in regards to Jewish belief and Jewish teaching. Further still, he goes back, verse 21, referencing apparently Jewish language, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Switching back again, verse 23, to pagan language, self-made religion, asceticism, severity to the body. He's vague and he's general and he mixes the two things together to lump them all into one general false teaching. That word asceticism, it's a unique word. It's the doctrine that a person can attain a high spiritual or moral state by self-denial or self-mortification, things like that. We find that practice even today in monasteries among monks. Martin Luther was that kind of a monk before he was converted. He believed that he would be closer to God if he denied himself the things of this life. Luxuries, good food, nice clothes, things like that. He also believed further, as do most monks today, that if I will beat myself into submission... Severity to the body. Then I'll be more spiritual. I'll beat my flesh out of me. So they would use things like whips and cords to slap their back. Punish themselves. Paul uses all of this language. He uses pagan language. Secular language. He uses Jewish language. He uses semi-religious language and asceticism. To address this apparent false teaching. That is at least... to some degree, a threat to the Colossian church. In verse 4 of chapter 2, he even calls it a plausible argument. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Things that sound right. Matt Chandler has a quote, it's a good quote, he says... If you don't know what the Bible says, you will always be a slave to what sounds right. If you don't know what the Bible says, you will always be a slave to what sounds right. Paul writes to this church to say, don't be a slave to what sounds right. Be a slave to the truth. Because there's going to be false teaching, false teachers who come to you with plausible arguments. They will sound right. Verse 23 again in chapter 2 is, is really almost a summary verse of the whole letter. He even says about these false teachings, they have an appearance of wisdom. Not only do they sound right, they seem right. They make sense in our minds. They look like a good practice. But, he finishes verse 23, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And there you have it. The issue that Paul takes with false teaching. 
no matter how vague it is, no matter how broad it is, no matter where it comes from, no matter what it consists of, it has no ability to address your heart. No ability to make you righteous and crucify your flesh. No ability to make you holy before God. No ability to reconcile you to God. False teaching abounds, church. It is all over this world, and it even comes from within our own minds, our own flesh. And it sounds right, and it looks good, and it has an appearance of wisdom. Its problem is, it never brings us closer to God. Never. The whole point of Colossians is for Paul to highlight that and say, the only thing that is of value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh the only thing that will redeem your heart and reconcile you to God is Jesus Christ. It's Paul's vague look at this false teaching and all the words that he uses to describe it that makes Colossians so wildly relevant. Wildly relevant. As I said, false teachings, they abound. False teachings like this abound. They abound in both obvious ways and subtle ways. And as Paul's whole goal in writing this letter, we must realize our only hope to avoid being taken captive by philosophies and empty deceit is clinging to Jesus. Your flesh wages war against you even. Again, in both obvious and subtle ways. Where it creeps into your mind to view Christ to a lesser degree. Or to supplement Christ with some other belief. Or to forget the sufficiency of Christ for all things in your life. Or to supplement your faith in God with something like your own ability. Or your own wisdom. Or your own skill. Or your own goodness. That's not some harmless thinking that arises in your mind. That is false teaching from a wicked enemy who would distract you from the glories of God. Who would pull you away from satisfaction in Jesus. Who would pull you away from confidence in the faith that God is true to his promise. That those who call upon him will be saved. Anytime our minds lessen Christ. Anytime our flesh and our heart is tempted to supplement Christ or supplement the cross or supplement the gospel with whatever it may be, some new teaching, some new revelation, some hard-earned ability of morality in your heart, that is a false teaching that threatens your faith. False teachings like this church, they abound and they abound in private temptation and in public proclamation and the threat is real. We too can be taken captive. We too can be led astray. We too can be convinced by plausible arguments and appearances of wisdom. Shiny mirrors and flashing light that take our eyes off of Christ. Now just frankly, 
That's why I have committed myself and expect our church to walk through the Bible verse by verse by verse. Not so that we might have a good knowledge. But so that we might behold Christ. And in beholding Christ, be captivated by Him. And in being captivated by Jesus, protected from all false teaching. And in protected from false teaching, having our hope secure. Our victory and our defense against the, the false teaching that the world pushes at us each and every day, it doesn't come in our rituals that build some self-gratifying fortress around us. And it doesn't come in our human tradition that buries us deep in a rut of protection. Our only victory and our only defense comes in knowing the glories of Jesus and being taken up with Him in such a way that the false teachings of the world and the false temptations of your flesh can find no place in your heart. The goal of Colossians is for you to be so captivated with Jesus and so thrilled by Him and in such awe and adoration of Him that both obvious and subtle false teachings will have no traction with you. You and I live in a world today where we are being pushed on what to believe, what to accept, what to reject, what to define as right, what to define as wrong. How to view ourselves and how to view others. How to treat ourselves and how to treat others. I don't think the world is any different than 2,000 years ago. The only difference right now is that we live in a digital age that makes it a little bit more fast-paced and, and easily accessible. And it comes at us every day, a whole day, in obvious and subtle ways. And our only weapon against it is to be taken up with Jesus. That's what Paul sets out to address to, to highlight that this false teaching is a danger, but his method of doing it is what makes the book glorious and rich. He doesn't define the teaching so much because he majors in this book on Jesus. That's his answer to the false teaching. In fact, throughout the book of Colossians, he far outweighs and far more talks about Jesus than he does the false teaching. He only highlights the false teaching to show that the believer should be more trusting of Christ. His method is to paint this very high view of the Lord so that we would come to the realization that there really is nothing in this life that compares with Him. And that there really is no greater treasure that you and I can possess Paul would have us see, really, not just that Jesus is greater than, than any false teaching that robs us of grace and hope and peace and, and all of those things. He would even have us see that Jesus is a greater treasure than our own lives. Than our own children and our own grandchildren. Than our spouse and our careers and our grades and, and our relationships and our friendships and, and all of those things. Paul's goal is to combat false teaching by telling of the glory and majesty of Jesus. By lifting Him up in such a way that we can't help but to see Him and adore Him and be amazed by Him. That's what makes me excited about Colossians. 
Because as we walk through this letter, the Jesus that we saw teaching and working in Luke, we now see the beauty of Him and the glory and magnificence of Him in Colossians. So Paul continually sets before us the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, and the calling of Jesus. And that calling is to trust in Him as enough for all the needs you might have in this life and the life to come. In, in a simpler way of saying it, that Christ alone is sufficient for all that you need. You don't need to supplement a philosophy. You don't need to bring in some human tradition or some elemental spirit. You don't need to bring in self-made religion, asceticism, severity to body. You don't need to bring in rules like do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. You don't need to bring in questions of food and drink or, or a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. You don't need to keep all these rituals and these, these regulations and, and do all of these certain things and, and practice self-denial so that you might be closer to God. You need to cling to Christ. That's the point. You need to grab onto Jesus and hold with all your might. You need to pray for your faith. You need to dive deeply into the Word of God. You need to beg for God to give you eyes to see Jesus as He is to be seen. Christ alone is sufficient. John Calvin in his commentary on this letter says this, he says, Truly, even this one article, that Christ is sufficient, is of itself perfectly sufficient to lead us to reckon this epistle, short as it is, to be an inestimable treasure. What he's getting at there is saying that there's a lot of lessons that we can and we will learn throughout the book of Colossians. A lot of things that we need to bring out and highlight that shape and form our theology, our doctrine, our, our Christian life, how we relate to one another, all of those things. But the, the simple fact is that the way Paul paints the glory of Jesus is enough for us to say this letter is an inestimable treasure. If that's all we get from it is the beauty and worth and magnitude and majesty of Christ it's one of our greatest treasures. He goes on to say, this epistle distinguishes the true Christ from a fictitious one. And there is nothing better or more excellent that can be desired. Oh, isn't that true? To have a true Christ put before us and a fictitious one expelled from us, there can be no better or more excellent desire for us to actually taste of Christ. What do you think makes a disciple devoted? What do you think makes a martyr willing to die for their faith? What do you think makes that mature believer Pursue holiness, even at the cost of self. It's that they have tasted the richness of Jesus. And have come to find that He is greater. And He is better. And He is more satisfying. And He is more pleasurable. And He is more fulfilling than anything I can find anywhere else. That's Paul's goal. That we would see the true Christ 
and realize there is nothing better or more excellent that we can desire and even pursue after. Throughout this book, this, this letter and these four chapters, Paul will highlight different things like faith. He'll, he'll talk about the gospel. He'll explain Christian service. He'll explain Christian living. He'll discuss the nature of salvation. He'll discuss the nature of the church. He'll highlight the importance of Scripture. He'll inform and define our relationships. He'll even touch on things like creation. But by and far, more than anything else, he talks about Jesus. And how Jesus informs our faith. And how Jesus defines the gospel. And how Jesus motivates our service. And how Jesus dictates our Christian living. And how Jesus fulfills our salvation. And how Jesus is the head of the church. And how Jesus is the theme of Scripture. And how Jesus informs our relationships. And how Jesus is the agent of creation. Everything Paul talks about in this letter is built upon the foundation of the person of Jesus Christ. In chapter 1 alone of Colossians, he talks about the kingdom of Jesus, the redemption of Jesus, the forgiveness that's only found in Jesus. He says that Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the agent of creation. He says that creation is actually in existence for Jesus. He says that Jesus holds all creation together. He says that Jesus is the head and Lord of the church, the one and only rule. He says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. He says that Jesus is preeminent or supreme above all things. He says that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Jesus. He says that Jesus is the only reconciler to God. And believe it or not, he says more than that in chapter 1 alone. Oh, church, this makes Colossians a book in which we get to put before ourselves the greatest treasure we could know. Why is this book important? Why is Paul's pursuit of truth so important? The answer is simple. Because it gives us Jesus. And in having Jesus, we have all that we need. He is sufficient. Are you concerned about your standing before God? You don't need to turn to your own ability to secure assurance. You need to turn to Jesus. Perhaps, and I expect and hope, that we even as believers will be edified and convicted to the point of realizing, I don't view Jesus with the kind of esteem that Paul does. Maybe I should be corrected. Yes, we should. So Paul will spend the first two chapters talking about who Jesus is, how glorious He is. He'll move on to how that affects our lives. Chapters 1 and 2, he lays down a theology and a doctrine. Chapters 3 and 4, he fleshes out the glories of Christ for our Christian living and how that impacts us. All that to bring us now to chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. Man, that's a long introduction, huh? Hopefully rich. Hopefully a good synopsis. For us to see that there is a threat in this world. And the only answer to that threat is Christ himself. And he's worth the pursuit. 
well, I cannot in good conscience preach without looking at some verses in conjunction to one another. So verses 1 and 2. I think I said this morning was an introduction. So let's at least consider Paul's introduction to the letter. It's very customary, very normal. Uh, in fact, in most of all of Paul's letters, minus one or two, we find a very similar, if not verbatim, uh, greeting, introduction. One author said, it's so customary and so ordinary that Paul probably didn't think much about it. I disagree, but I think there's an element of truth there. It's so standard that Paul pretty much knew how he was going to open this letter. It's a standard Greek opening to a letter. But Paul does use some unique language, and I believe he's driving home a specific point or intention in his introduction. So we begin with his identification of himself as the writer. That goes way beyond, though, just the mere fact of introducing himself. By the way, Colossians is not planted by Paul. Paul has never been there by the time he writes this letter. He's never met uh, the Colossian church, minus one individual named Epaphras and another individual named Philemon. If he's met anybody else from this church, we don't know. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So he begins with that understanding that I have really no prior relationship to you personally, only by extension. And so with that in mind, he has to establish his credentials. And he does. He establishes his unique authority in two specific ways in verse 1. He first establishes apostolic authority by his virtue of his connection to Christ. Paul, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. That means, though you've never met me, nor, nor have I met you, I do have the ability to speak into the life of your church. And I do, by virtue of my connection to Christ, have ability to speak into your own lives. I'm an apostle. And I have the authority to clarify what is true about Jesus and what is false about Jesus. But he intensifies his authority when he says, not only am I an apostle of Christ Jesus, but I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. This isn't of my own choosing. I am who I am and I have the authority I have by God's sovereign decision and choice. In other words, this letter and my authority to write to your church is God-sanctioned, God-ordained, and God-approved. Therefore, I can speak into your life. I do not find this to be a boastful statement by Paul because he uses the personal pronouns all throughout this letter. It's a very personal letter. And he never elsewhere boasts of his authority uh, or, or apostolic stance, status. So I don't take this as a boastful thing. I take this introduction to mean I do have the authority to clarify for you what you need to know. God has given me such authority to speak into your life. 
My authority comes in my relation to Christ and my commissioning by God. And that really is enough. Verse 1, he also introduces Timothy, which is interesting in this letter. Paul's not alone when he's writing this letter. He is in prison, but he's not alone. In chapter 4, he lists a whole host of people who are with him or at least in contact with him. But in verse 1, he only mentions Timothy. We know from other New Testament letters in Acts, Timothy is by and far his closest companion his closest associate in ministry. That is perhaps a reason that he's mentioned him in verse 1. Me and my close associate. I don't think Timothy is a co-author of this book. I think at best, Timothy is what we call today a secretary. Uh, he would have written down Paul's words for Paul. There were two types of secretaries in Paul's day. It's not uncommon for a writer to have somebody write for them, especially Paul in his older years and older age. The two types were some who would paraphrase, like my wife does. Yeah, she does. Paraphrases, thought for thought. There were also those who were more syllable by syllable, letter by letter, word by word, like Doug. They don't go thought for thought. They go very detailed. Timothy appears to be that kind of a person, dictating in that kind of a way. I believe he is one who's writing on Paul's behalf because of how the letter ends. Chapter 4, verse 18, the very last verse in this letter, Paul writes in his own handwriting and says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains and grace be with you. I, I write this greeting as opposed to the first greeting. So it's likely Timothy's included, not necessarily because he's a co-author or possesses some a unique divine station. He's not described as an apostle, but merely because he's the one writing on Paul's behalf. Paul ultimately sanctions this letter. And he does so as an apostle who has the right on behalf of God to speak into the life of this church. Verse 2, we learn of the recipients he's writing to. They're the believers in Colossae, the, the only church that exists in this um, major city. Colossae was a declining city, but was still considered a major city. It was once located along a major trade route before that route was moved. The 500 years before Christ, it was the biggest city, the chief city in, in the place that it's located, the Lycus Valley. That's not my first-hand knowledge, that's archaeological knowledge and historians writing that. It was a very diverse city. It was also a very pagan city. Perhaps that's where the false teachings come from. This mixture of all kinds of different religions. The closest Paul ever came to this city was Ephesus, which was about 120 miles to its west. It's likely that this church was planted by a man named Epaphras, whom we will meet in verse 7, who traveled to Ephesus, heard Paul preach, and was converted and then sent back to plant the church in Colossae. Colossae was losing traction in its population, in its trade and economy, to two other cities that were very close. North and west was a city about 11 miles away, named Laodicea, one that we know. Another one that we know about six miles northwest of Laodicea was Heropolis. 
So Colossae was a city that we might say is declining, whom some might not give much attention to, and yet who Paul is totally devoted to so that they might know Christ. And he writes to them and he expresses his purpose at the end of verse 2. Before I get there, let's highlight the unique language that he uses for these believers. He doesn't use it anywhere else in his greetings. He calls them saints and faithful brothers. Your Bible translation might not use the word saints. It might use the word holy ones. That's because it can go either way. And both are acceptable in translating the original language. It's not that they're saints by the fact of their, their standards of righteousness or, or their uh, attainments in their own personal lives. They're saints or holy ones by their relation to God. In other words, Paul is highlighting here that they're distinct from the world. You are those who are chosen out by God. This will apply later as they consider the false teachings that abound in this city. You don't need to believe the world's teachings. You're God's people. You're pulled out of the world. You're chosen out of the world. You're set apart. You're saints. You're holy ones. You, you are now united to God and under His rule. He also uses the word faithful brothers. Going beyond just their faith that they possess. Although in verse 3 and 4, He's going to be thankful for that. We're thankful. We praise God since we've heard of your faith. What He gets at in the introduction here in verse 2 with the word faithful is more so of devotion and allegiance. You're a people who are devoted to Christ. A people who have their allegiance to Jesus alone. It's not only an acknowledgement, although it is that, a grateful acknowledgement, it's also yet again a reminder that you're to be allegiant to Christ alone, not to any other teaching or God or society. So Paul's in instruction or... or, or Introduction here in verse 2 already begins reminding these believers that you're, you're chosen out for God. You're allegiant to God as you should be. Then he expresses his desire that is very customary to all the churches. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Distinctly Christian gifts and Christian language. Grace and peace, they're not only things that believers need, they're things that believers desire. Grace is the very foundation of our relationship to God. The fact that we are here, the fact that we get to worship, the fact that we are saved, the fact that we get to come to God in prayer, hear His Word open, sing His songs, that is all grace. The fact that we join Him in service to His kingdom and to His glory, is grace. You and I do not relate to God whatsoever apart from grace. So grace is our very relation to God. Peace is the very promise we have from God. It's the promise of endurance in this life. When the storm rages and hostility abounds, I will give you peace beyond all understanding. But peace is our hope, isn't it? It's the promise of our hope in heaven. Heaven is described as the place of peace. This is what Paul desires for these believers. Because both of them can only be found in God through Christ. 
I'm writing to you and I'm going to correct the false teaching and I'm going to magnify the glory of Jesus so that you might have and know and hold on to and forever possess grace and peace. That which you need, that which you should desire. One Bible scholar named F.F. Bruce described it this way, and I think it's well written. He says, grace is God's unconditional goodwill toward men and women, which is decisively expressed in the saving work of Christ. Peace is the state of life, peace with God and peace with one another, that is enjoyed by those who have effectively experienced that divine grace. Grace is distinctively expressed to us through the work of Christ. And peace is the outflowing of that grace. And Paul's desire is that they might know this grace and this peace. Let me just warn you, false teaching that plagues the Colossian believers and plagues the church today and the Christian today will always threaten your grace and your peace. It will rob you sabotage you, even remove your experience of grace and peace. Paul writes that they might know their only Savior and Lord and in knowing Him have this grace and peace. And in closing, let me just say, the same is true for us. Like this church, we have this authoritative letter given to us by God, so that through Him alone and His Son Jesus, we might know the full grace and peace that He offers and provides. Our faith is threatened all the time. As I said earlier, our own flesh works against us, desiring far lesser things. What's going to make this book so wonderful for us as individuals and so wonderful for our church is it's meant to hold up Jesus as the greatest promise, the greatest treasure, the greatest delight that we might ever possibly know and therefore protect our faith. So I come to the end asking you to commit with me to the book of Colossians. To dive deeply in this book with me as faithfully as we can for the singular purpose of knowing Jesus. Having Him magnified before us. That we might consider the details of Him and that our hearts might be thrilled with Him. Maybe even today you have come to consider that Christ holds a place of worth in the believer's heart that you haven't given Him that you haven't viewed or seen Christ as glorious as this book is going to describe. And maybe today, I hope, you have tasted, even if slightly, of the riches of Jesus. And will today come to a place of faith and repentance and be saved. What a glorious result 
Maybe you're a believer this morning. And if God is being good to you, you too are convicted that Christ deserves a greater place of elevation in my life than I have given Him. That's always true of us, right? But the response for you, believer, is the same. Be edified through repentance right now. Come before God. Asking Him to help you elevate Christ to His rightful place in your life. To help you behold Him in this letter with adoration and thanksgiving. That's my prayer. Father, Your Word is rich. And even when we just look at it by way of introduction, it can stir us. It can build us up. It can make us consider how glorious You really are. Oh, the answer to fight the world's false beliefs is not lifeless orthodoxy. It is having a heart captivated and consumed by You. And, and I'm so thankful that You've given us this letter. You've given us the whole Scriptures that we might know You and behold You and be moved by You. Would You accomplish this purpose? For the unbeliever today, stir them up that they might come to salvation in You, saving faith in You. And for Your children, build up our faith and edify us as Your Spirit applies these thoughts and these words and these truths to our hearts. Help us to hold You in the rightful place, the place that You're worthy of being held in. Priority number one, to view You in greater ways than we ever have before. We ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.